0: This week on Writers Inc. With the Peter Ash series, I am really interested in character. I am really interested in how, char- how characters relate to each other. Uh, and these are, these are fast, fun books. My goal is to keep you uh, reading uh, late at night, well past your bedtime with a flashlight under the covers, which is how all good books should be read. Uh, but, you know, I, I am really interested in how who people are and how people are. And I think short fiction is a great sort of low stress, low stakes place to, to examine that.
1: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book.
2: Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson
0: worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where did they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets, what does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name?
3: Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers' Inc. I'm Kevin Tomlinson and I'm JD. Barker. welcome to Writers' Inc so we've got like half the cast out this week. It feels like that the parents have left us left us you know in, in the house alone yeah. us,
2: Big so mistake) <laughs>
3: <laughs> let's, try, let's try not to muck it up. Um, I, I was just reading a, a bunch of stuff about GPTs. Um, I had a meeting yesterday with this really interesting company. They basically take your novel and they, they drop it into a, a GPT that they customized and it outputs something very similar to a graphic novel. Um, and they showed me in real time that they, yeah, they did it with um, the first chapter of fourth monkey. Um, and I, I was very impressed. Like, I mean, it kicked out six different image stills and then it grabbed text and, and, you know, not only dialogue, but just text to kind of describe what was going on. Um, and it wasn't, um, you know, it definitely wasn't a finished product but mm-hmm. i could see somebody maybe spending another 10 15 minutes or something you know going through cleaning it up and and having a finished product um and it yeah. was able to generate all that inside of you know it was what 20 seconds 30 seconds i mean some insane you know ridiculous number but um you know, I, I'm not using any AI really on my side from, you know, from a business standpoint or writing standpoint, but like those kinds of things I really find interesting because I could see that changing, you know, the dynamic at creating a graphic novel, creating a comic. There's a ton of work involved in something like that.
2: Um, yeah. and this, this, this could change that. I've been, uh, this is something I've, I've kind of kicked around for a long while now, actually trying to figure out like the, the easiest and best way to potentially use AI to do it, but like, you know, and I, I've bought a couple of things that let me do things. The problem with AI for um, like graphic novel art or whatever has been the consistency of the characters faces, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and even sort of the costume designs and stuff. So I, I, I pay for an app that does face swapping. So you can say, once you've generated the face of this character, you can actually, tell it to swap that face with anything else it generates. And so it'll always be consistent and it keeps the expressions and things like that. But that's like a really weird laborious workaround. So this, this kind of thing, I think what we, I think what I hope is coming is they're going to have like this thing will spit out like, you know, after uh, um, Adobe illustrator files or, or Photoshop files or something that where everything's in layers. Cause mm-hmm. that at, at that point, you know, if you've got any chops at all, like that's where the, the, the real like shaping and design is going to happen. So like they just do, it just does like a first draft, you know, color illustration, but you open it up and there's layers for everything that you can kind of tweak and modify. I think that's when you're going to start seeing this become more viable as a, as a tool. Did you see the whole, all the stuff? Go ahead. No, I was just
3: going to say, this definitely had the problem that you just mentioned. So like it had Sam Porter, yeah. who's the lead detective in probably four out of the six pictures that it showed me. And he looked different in, in each one. Um, but we talked about that too. And they said that this is basically, they, they created code that basically creates prompts that feed the GPT. Um, so if you think about what you type into, like, I guess, Dolly or, or MidJourney or one of those other ones, like it's basically creating the prompts, putting it in there and creating the, you know, helping to spur the output. Uh, they said that they've they're what they're working on now is basically the ability to type in in certain things that have to remain constant uh, throughout the book. So in this case, I guess they would create a description of Sam Porter that would become part of that prompt every time it asks the GPT to create an image. Um, So I think I I, I can see that working. Um, I mean, this is very, very early stages, but um, I, I I mean, considering how fast all this stuff is moving, you know, like six months to a year, this might be a a, a working model.
2: Yeah. I, I I don't think it's going to take just in the like past, two or three months just the evolution of it has been pretty impressive but uh someone shared with me yesterday so there was i saw a post where um chat gpt was used to solve one of the uh captcha things where it it could recognize like the swirly letters and everything Uh so you know that's no longer useful, uh, and that's not going to keep any anything from uh, being automated. But the uh, then on the heels of that, someone sent me an article where Chat GPT used Task, or maybe it wasn't Chat GPT, but an AI used Task Rabbit and convinced a human being on Task Rabbit to help it solve uh, a captcha or something similar. So, mm-hmm. but beyond just doing that, the article went into how like they were looking at sort of the you can look at the AI's thought process to see, like, what what are the things it's thinking, like, you know, why is it taking the actions it's taking? And it was basically um, a human could solve this. I need to do what a human would do to fool another human into solving this. <laughs> so, so now it has begun. Our doom is upon us. <laughs> well, that's impressive
3: because I can't even get read like half the captions that get put I can't in front either, of me. I, I'm always hitting that, you know, like that little button to get a new one because it's like it can't make out the letters when it throws. I want to
2: I want to see how it does with those like, p- you know, click on every image of a bicycle. And, yeah. uh, you know, especially the ones where it's like a sliver of the bicycle's handle is in this square. Is right. does that count? You know, so that that's what I'm waiting for. If it can solve that, then I really have been replaced in this whole system. Oh, man.
3: Um, you've got something going on with
2: authorization, right? Yeah, man. I, you know, today, uh, as, of the, as of the day we're recording this, which is February 1st, uh, everyone's going to be listening to this much later. But uh, today, 4 p.m. Central, they, they are debuting the first episode of the Author Nation podcast. So uh, I'm really excited about that. The, the whole Author Nation thing, I mean, I'm just I'm really excited about what we're going to be doing with the podcast. But I'm, I'm equally excited about what's happening with that conference, because I, I do see it as a sort of watershed for publishing, not just indie publishing. I actually want to start kind of shifting every, all of us away from terms like indie publishing. Cause I think we're now in this sort of, you know, mishmash of what publishing is now. And there's, there's just different avenues to the same goalpost, <laughs> you yeah. know? And I, I think, uh, we're doing ourselves a disservice now at this point by, by constantly saying indie or self-publishing or whatever. I think, um, we can be in, indie publishers and indie proud that's that's still good but i think author nation and things like it are starting to come up because the nature of what publishing is has definitely definitely changed but
3: well it's the same on the flip side too right the trad people you know like it's it's no longer just trad anymore like everybody's kind of stepped yeah. like if there was if there were three rooms everybody's now in the room in the middle you know, it's, right? And, and and everything is kind of getting mixed together
2: in the Venn diagram of publishing. The Venn diagram all yeah. in the center. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're, if anyone who wants to check out that podcast, and there's going to be some great episodes coming up, uh, go to authornation.live, Live. Uh, and uh, if you want to suggest suggest some topics, it's authornation.live Live slash Deep Dive, and that will let you suggest guests and topics and whatever you want for the uh for the podcast there's another site and i I don't remember what it is for suggesting guests and topics for the conference you might want to do that too uh especially if you're interested in being a, a guest yourself or a speaker yourself uh go go try that out so that's
3: what it is all right we'll throw some links in the show notes for that too perfect
2: this episode is brought to you by autocrit One of the most value-packed memberships for any author, Autocrit brings you an amazing suite of tools that make it a breeze to plan, write, and edit your books all in one place. Autocrat takes you far above standard grammar checking or cookie cutter guidance. Instead, it's like having an experienced editor in your genre watching over your shoulder to help you deliver great writing that keeps your audience trapped in the story. You can even compare your writing style to more than 100 best-selling authors right down to the word level, so you can see what the best in the business do to keep their storytelling clean, clear, and crisp. Listeners of the Writers Inc. podcast can now take advantage of lifetime membership for one single fee. That's right, no renewal fees. Hi, this is J.D. Barker.
3: I've used AutoCrit for years, and not only has it improved my writing, but it's been a crucial tool with aspiring authors that I've mentored. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just beginning, it'll help you find your weak spots and weed
2: them out. Give it a shot with your latest project. Trust me, your editor will thank you. Head to AutoCrit.com J.D. to get your lifetime membership. Big thanks to AutoCrid for sponsoring the show. All right, JD, what do we got coming up this week? This week,
3: we've got Nick Petrie on. He's the best-selling author of numerous thrillers, best known for his Peter Ash novels. And his latest book is called The Price You Pay, releases February 6th. Uh, Here he is, Nick Petrie.
1: Okay, Nick Petrie, you've achieved some early success and recognition in short fiction. How has your experience and understanding of shorter fiction influenced your narrative style and thematic choices when it comes to works like the Peter Ash series?
0: Boy, I love that question. I have never gotten that question, and I thought I had gotten all the possible questions. So I, <laughs> I, I appreciate um, one writer's questions, because uh, I, I think it's a different level um, that, than we get from from many interviewers. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know I short fiction taught me how to write. Uh, mm-hmm. when, you, when you're writing short stories, you can iterate very quickly. So there's less fear of failure and you get to try new skills. And you know I wrote I don't know probably 15 stories, only three or four of which I think are any good, only two of which have ever been published. Um, and one of them ended up winning an award, which is how I got my agent. So I think I think there's definitely some industry benefits, but but in terms of learning how to be a, it taught me how to be a writer in a way that um, I think really benefits me with the Peter Ash series because I am I am really interested in character. I am really interested in character, how characters relate to each other, uh, and these are these are fast fun books. My goal is to keep you. Uh, reading uh, late at night, well past your bedtime with a flashlight under the covers, which is how all good books should be read. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm really interested in how, who people are and how people are. And I think short fiction is a great sort of low stress, low stakes place to, to examine that. Um, because if, if all you're writing is an action scene, it's not really a story. There's no, there's no heart or soul to it. Um, it's just, you know, two people having a fist fight or whatever.
1: Right. Um yeah, and I find that interesting and and kind of taking those sort of small snippets and, and really honing in to develop a character or you know, some type of resonation within those short works. And so when when looking from the drifter to this current novel, the price you pay, how have you seen the the series and its characters evolve? Are there certain like themes or developments that you've focused and really um honed in on as you've gone throughout?
0: Well, the 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 thing that I think the biggest piece is that my main character, Peter Ash is a Marine Corps combat veteran and he has post-traumatic stress from his time at war. And I'm not a veteran myself. This is not something I I suffer from uh, that I know of, Uh, but it's super common. And uh, I wanted to sort of explore what that, what it was like for people to come home from war from into a culture where, where, we don't really understand what that's like. You know, some, it's like 10% of Americans serve in the armed forces. It's all uh, volunteer. This is not World War II. Or it's not even Vietnam where there's a draft. Um, you sign up to go. And, and so it is, a, it is a small chunk of the population. And, and I, I realized this because I was running a, a home inspection business. So you, you buy a house and you hire a guy like me to tell you what's wrong with it. And I had all of these clients coming back after the surge in Iraq. And, you know, I was interested in the, the politics uh, of the war and the progress of the war and all of those things. And it, to my shame, I really hadn't thought about what life was like for people after they after they came home. And it was talking to those veterans that really made me want to know more. And so I just sort of followed my interest into this world. And so in that first book, The Drifter is like, Peter's PTSD is really at the heart of that book. Mm -hmm. Um, it's called the white static it's it's basically claustrophobia so it makes it really difficult for him to be inside for long periods of time um and if he does the result is basically a, a debilitating panic attack and so that's almost a separate character through that first book and and when i started writing i sort of thought well he'll he'll get cured at the end right i'll solve this this problem and he'll be you know i but the more people I talked to and the more I read about it, the more like you, you are never cured. Um, you, you get better at dealing with it. You get better at working your way through, uh, you know, your own version of post-traumatic stress because everybody has their own their own version. It's unique to every, pre- every person. Um, but so I guess as the series progressed, I wanted to see Peter evolving. And to see him learning to deal with his post-traumatic stress, because he had, uh, by the second book, Peter falls in love, and so he has a motivation to stop living in his truck, to uh, you know learn to be able to sleep inside with this woman he's crazy about. Um, so, and then all the way through, really the fifth book, it's 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 um, really a, a core piece, and the fifth book is essentially a relapse book where he's been doing better. But then something happens, and, and and this is also something that happens to vets. I have a friend who is a Vietnam vet whose grandchild died in a, a kind of a freak event, um, and it it you know th- totally threw him off the rails. Um, and and it's so you know I wanted to sort of show what that is like, and and again, sort of how do you pull yourself back from it? And I, I'm focusing on that on that less now. It's it's still present in all the books. Um, mm-hmm. Peter's Peter's war is still lives in him is still is still present in these books but um, I, I'm trying to uh, allow him to move on and allow myself as a writer to sort of find other things I'm, I'm interested in
1: yeah there there was a couple really interesting things that you hit on there um, one uh, these aspects of you know the characters of veteran you not being a veteran and having PTSD and really a lot of it sounded like it it led down to having these conversations with people that had those lived experiences and really like taking in that research. Uh, For someone who wants to write these sorts of individuals or these sorts of um, issues, concepts, whatever they are, uh, how would you suggest that they approach it? What was your method? And then how do you get that on the paper?
0: Another great question. Uh, This is fantastic. Um... I mean, for for me, I am just a curious person and I am, I really like, and am interested in people. And so for me, I just, I just sort of, it it was, it was, it was all very informal. And I, I had the gift of having these clients showing up over and over again. Uh, It also helps. I'm the kind of person that people tell things to, Um, you know, uh, a year ago, I was in line at the grocery store and the person ahead of me told me she was getting a divorce and I was the first person she told and I'd never met her before. Um, you know, people tell me things on airplanes and in airports and, um, and there's just something about, about, uh, I think how I am with people, how, how interested I am that people share things about themselves. And I think that's an important quality. I don't know if you can invent that, but you can certainly encourage that in yourself, um, to be non-judgmental and to be interested. People love to talk about themselves to somebody who is interested in, in, in you know, what they're thinking and what they've been through. Um, so I think that's, that's part of It's just to sort of put yourself in the way of those, of those characters, but you have to do the research. You really have to, like, for me, it was really important to get it right. Um, I actually had a a panic attack of my own before that first book came out when I realized, Holy crap, people might actually read this thing (laughs) that I had spent three years, you know, in my basement slaving away at. And, um, and I, I in the afterward I'm very explicit I'm not a veteran this is not my experience here's how I came up with this character etc cetera, etc cetera. um but I was really nervous about how that would be received and and I'm thankfully it's been received very well in that community I get I get you know emails and and you know messages all the time from people who are like boy that book really changed my life uh it, I mean it's crazy the, the response to this book uh that first book especially but um you know, I, I think if you, you are doing both yourself and your readers a disservice, if you do not really lean into what drives people, uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean you have to know all the lingo, all the terminology. I will never write a book where Peter is at war because that's a world that is so full of its own very specialized knowledge. And I'm not that kind of researcher. Like I I am not, I can't dive in like that in terms of how to put it on the page. I guess i i for me, I just sort of try to internalize as much of it as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I take a few notes, but I don't take a lot of notes. Um, I just try to, you know, sort of soak it up and hopefully it just, it, it all kind of comes out what it needs to. And then as I, as I revise and revise and revise, you know, I it's, gee, I, I need a little something here or that's not working quite right. And that's just writer stuff. Um, yeah. I, to me, that's not about, you, you're, you're tapping into what you've learned, but the the other trick is to is to see it right. What what Ernest Hemingway called your built in bullshit detector, um, <laughs> as a writer, is to know when something's working and, and when it's not.
1: And you had sort of mentioned this before. Uh, I think I, before I hit record, but you have feedback that you get from people. Uh, about certain characters that you portray or about these aspects that you portray, do you send out your work before it gets published to get that sort of feedback to certain groups or certain individuals? Or is this just something that you're kind of getting back from your your primary audience? Uh, it's it's just stuff
0: I get back from my primary audience. I uh, I am a deadline-challenged writer. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I am not one of those guys who can knock out a book in four months. I really wish uh, I could be. I have friends who do that, and I am entirely envious. Um, I am really sweating bullets all along the way actually, I, this, this current book, the price you pay, um, I ended up throwing out five months worth of work. Uh, and which is why instead of it being published, uh, in February of 23, it was, it's being published in February of 24. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't have time to do that kind of stuff. I do. Um, I, I wrote a book set in Memphis where, um, almost every character except the hero is black. And I, I really wanted to uh, make sure I wasn't uh, being an asshole, uh, just to put a very uh, plain face on it. Um, so I was on a, a panel with a guy named Danny Gardner who wrote a, a wonderful book called A Negro at an Ofe about a half black, half white um, uh, veteran in the 50s. Really beautifully written, and I had met him at a thing, and I I said, Hey, Danny, I and and we we get along, Uh, and I said, Danny, I have an awkward, racially tinged question to ask. Would you Would you read 3,500 words? So he read the opening and was like, A, this is great. You're doing just fine. You have tapped into this community, uh, and I want to see the rest of it. So so that was sort of the the one time I really kind of sent it out early. Um, and I think if I hadn't, my publisher might've sent, wanted me to anyway, as a, Mm -hmm. uh, what's called a diversity read in the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, given, given that I've had such positive feedback about, uh, you know, Lewis is a character in this book and he's a, he's a black man and I've had great positive feedback from black readers about him in the past. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not super worried about it. Uh, I, the goal is just to, Write somebody who feels like a real human being, somebody that you would know and meet or want to know and meet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And on on the topic of having these deep things with with PTSD with veterans, but not wanting to make that the constant throughout this long running series, how are you approaching um, the price you pay? Uh, in keeping the book fresh and engaging to readers while still carrying this long uh story of these characters
0: that is really the whole trick i think uh <laughs> it is it is the it is the the central challenge to beginning a book in a series that now has eight books in it is you know the, the first book I, I was pretty sure it would never get published i'd written three books that couldn't get published um Uh, I had a very disappointing, uh, the, the, the effort to get the third book out was interrupted by the crash, in seven. And I just said, okay, well, I'm just going to write because I want to, because I can't help myself. Um, and so I wrote this book and, um, I didn't really think of it as part of a series. It was just a project I was working on. And then my, my agent said, uh, I hope you think I'm your agent, still my agent, because I can, sell this sucker and I know a two book deal and now I'm on book eight. But so that in the early days, you, you're, you're working from reflex, right? You're working from here are the things I'm interested in. Um, the second book has a little bit of a sci-fi flavor to it. And I, I, I grew up on sci-fi and mysteries and, and crime and it's all just sort of part of my uh, kind of part of my mojo. Um, you know, the third book happened because I, I met a guy in an airport who was moving to Portland to, to start a marijuana grow uh, right when the, the cannabis boom was starting. Um, and so that was kind of how that book came about. And so it's like, gee, I'd never done any of those before. But as you as you go forward, you know, gee, I, I can't write that kind of book because that was, you know, I've done that before. I've done this before. I've done that before. So you really have to sort of kind of refine. And it's it's about rejecting things until you find something that feels fresh enough and new enough. Um, this book is a little different because Peter or people have been asking me to write a Lewis book really since the beginning. Lewis is a fan favorite. He is, uh, uh, as Peter says, the most dangerous man he's ever met. He's a, a career criminal who has sort of kind of gone straight, who's become a family man, um, and and I, you know, he's always been a little bit mysterious. We, we we've gotten his point of view in every single book, but not a lot of them. Um, and in this book we get a lot of Lewis because I really wanted to dive into that background and what what did he do back in the bad old days, as he calls them. Um, and, and and you know in the in the new book, really his past has come back to haunt him. Um, and so and also in in the other books, he is sort of the he's sort of the helper character, right? Lewis shows up when things get bad uh, to mm-hmm. really help Peter. And, and in this book I wanted to turn those tables. I wanted, I wanted Lewis to have the problem and Peter to show up when things get bad. So so it was, it let me kind of play around with some of the some of the tropes. And I think, you know, moving forward, I'm I just keep trying new things uh in order to, to entertain myself, essentially. I mean, I think that's that's what we do, right? Is yeah, we begin <laughs> we begin by entertaining ourselves and hope that we are also entertaining somebody else. Um, did that answer your question?
1: yeah yeah, it did. You're good. <laughs> You're good. um so uh, a couple of interesting things we've we've sort of discussed is this, the, the ability to have these conversations with people around you and, and really learn their history and, and incorporate it into your writing. But you also have a really big background in just a bunch of trades from carpentry to contracting and so on. And do you use any of those sorts of experiences that influence your character development and how you use that knowledge to your advantage instead of keeping a separation between trade and writing?
0: Well, I, I was, yeah, I was a carpenter and a remodeling contractor for 15 years. And then I was a freelance building inspector for 15 years uh, after that. And, and I, I mean, I honestly still sort of think of myself as a carpenter. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to solve problems. I like to, to, you know, shape the space that I live in. Um, I've got, I have a, a, a giant table saw in my garage that my wife would <laughs> love for me to get rid of, but I just, I, I just can't, um, you know, I was a cabinet maker. I built custom furniture, all that kind of stuff. You know what it allowed me to do was to have a world to draw on. Um, I, I have a, an MFA from from years ago, and and my advisor told me that he was really jealous that I had. You know, he had someone who had gone, you know, straight through academia. He was he had he was a very uh, lauded author of short stories and nonfiction. Really smart guy, but he said he was jealous that I had material to draw on. And, and I think that helped me writing about, you know, veterans is because, you know, the military is a is a blue collar job, right? You're, you're putting your body at risk um, for a goal that is larger than yourself. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, being a, being a, a, you know, framing condos is not the same as going to war. I don't want to, you know, make them equivalent, but, but there is kind of a mindset of, uh, of that. And even if you're, even if you go to, you know, an Ivy league school and you end up as a Lieutenant in the army, you are, you are up to your eyeballs in this sort of working class blue collar population and, and life, right? It's, you're, you're dirty, your, your life is, you know, not your own. Um, so I, I think my background really gave me, um, some help with, with that piece and it's just the world I'm, I'm interested in. I'm, 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 you know, I kind of write this, I mean, as I write Peter Ash he is kind of a working class guy. And as the books go on, he's he's fixing up the house that he moves into with his girlfriend. He's, uh, then he has a, a project with Lewis where they're sort of trying to, you know, renovate a house to sell. And uh, in the new one, Peter is basically doing that kind of on his own. He's he's gutted a house and it's not, there's not a bunch of that in the book, but, but it, you do get a sense of that's who he is, is a hands-on sort of can-do person. And, you know, if you're a tradesman, you know, that's the same attitude as as if you're a soldier or, or hopefully it would be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm kind of curious what your process looks like now with writing and everything else that what sort of methods do you use to find space and time to write? And how do you, uh, how do you make space for that?
0: Well, I'm very lucky in that I now get to write full time. Um, That after my fourth book, um, I basically told my agent that, I could no longer run a business and write a book a year. It was driving me crazy. It was bad for my marriage. It was bad for my physical health. Um, I said, I can go to a book every other year or they can pay me enough to basically shut down this business. And so that's what we got to. Um, I'm not sure that was the best way to go because when writing is your livelihood, it's a different kind of pressure. Um, Mm -hmm. It becomes way too important. Uh, and, and for me, the goal is to kind of remember that this is just play. I'm just fooling around um, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I'm as susceptible to any of those things, to what do people think about what I'm, gonna, what I'm writing? Um, you know, how are my, what are my peers doing? And am I, am I as good as they are? Or am I, you know, do my books sell in the quantity that they do? Um, you know, all that stuff goes through my head like it goes through everybody else's. But the, the goal for me is to sort of put all that aside and to show up to work every day, I I, I get up, I I uh, either go for a walk or go for a run, uh, although I screwed my foot up, so now I'm that's less that's less possible. But um, You're going on a limp, yeah, yeah, going on. I like that. Um, you know, take a shower, make some coffee. Um, I actually started one of the one of the funny things that came out of writing about post traumatic stress is I started meditating, which is one of the ways to to make it it through post-traumatic stress. And I have found that to be super helpful in with writer stress as well. Um, and, and then I, I bring my breakfast to, to my desk and I, and I open the document and I sort of stare at it until something shows up. Um, I'm not an outliner. I, I would love to be an outliner. It, it just is not, uh, what works for me. Uh, I really need to discover it kind of every day. Um, I think that's what helps kind of keep me away from some formulaic stuff. Um, I think my I don't think I'm smart enough to be an outliner really because I, I i think the interesting things happen sort of spontaneously um and i you know I break for lunch i you know go for a walk or I go for a swim or i do move, movement is, is big for me just because I'm, I'm a physical guy and I've been working with my body my whole life and i it's also great for creativity because you're moving the blood through your brain uh, and then I go back to work so i i, t- I tend to work kind of a nine-to-five day with a little more time off for lunch than than most probably but um and some days i get a whole lot done and some days i i you know get very little done sometimes my work day consists of me in my office you know writing in a notebook trying to figure out what's going to happen next or trying to process something that that's going on in my life that is interfering with my work (laughs) Um, you know it's a it's a strange it's a strange life uh to be basically by yourself you know this you know all day you know staring <laughs> mm-hmm. at a screen talking to people who don't exist I mean it's a it's a weird life so I'm also trying to get out a little bit more we, we moved uh into a new neighborhood and our neighbors are awesome so we we're spending more time being social which is great
1: yeah that is I agree <laughs> um as a final question what advice would you offer to any aspiring authors, especially those that might be interested in writing these long running series like Peter Ash?
0: I think I think people often think that you really need to plan ahead. That you need to I I, I talk to aspiring writers who have like, oh, I have a 10 book arc and and I don't it's not how I work. It's not how other writers that I know that have successful long running series work. It's, it. it's not how CJ box works. It's not how William Kent Kruger works. Um, they just write the next book. And I think the, the, for me, it's really just write the best thing you can that, and write the thing that you most want to write. Don't think, I don't think about the marketplace. I don't think about what's out there that, you know, what niche can I fill? Like I, I have I have friends who work like that, and that's fine. But it's not what works for me. Um, I am working from a a place of kind of curiosity. What what am I really interested in? What kinds of stories do I want to tell? Um, my my books all really are are built around a social issue. And so that's the other thing is I'm exploring something I'm interested in because I think uh, crime fiction, especially, you know, kind of should be about something, right? Um, If all it is, 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 you know, witty banter and, and, you know, fisticuffs, I'm not that interested. Um, So that's, that's sort of my approach. And I also think I've talked to a lot of people who, well, I'm halfway through a book and how do I get an agent? And like, to me, those are absolutely separate events, like write the book, write the best book you can make it until every, revision until the next revision, it starts getting worse, Right make it as good as you possibly can. And then think about the business piece Um, because publishing is dying for the next great book, right? They are always on lookout. And if you can write that book, you, you will do just fine. So if you, the, the better of a writer you are, and, and you know, the, the, the better of a chance you will have. So put in that time and for God's sake, read, don't be, don't be one of those people who's like, yeah, I want to write a, a mystery, but I don't really read mysteries. I read romance. You have to, you have to know, you know. You have to, you have to read what you're, what you're writing. Um, I don't know. There's my rant on writing versus the industry.
3: You know, so the first thing that jumped out at me from from this was um, he said short fiction taught him how to write. Um, do, yeah. and, and that is so true. And, and, you know, I think authors all experience this on some level, even if you've never written short fiction. You know, you get to the end of your novel, you get it finished, you get it polished, you get it edited. Uh, mm-hmm. Then you've got to create that backup book blurb. You know, and taking yeah. your whole novel and drilling it down into one or two paragraphs, you know, 150, 200 words is very difficult to do uh, to summarize yeah. like that. And then you take it another le- step further and have to create that tagline, you know, one sentence to describe the whole book, which is insanely hard to do. But if you write um, short stories, you know, on the regular and you, you start there, or you do quite a, a few of them, it teaches you, you know, basically all the elements of the story and forces you to have to put them in such a short format. Um, it, when you expand to a, a novel, um, it's, it's a huge help.
2: Yeah, I it's funny because I I've had sort of an inversion in my writing over the years because I when I started um short fiction was kind of the the natural end product of what I was writing because I don't know, you you want to get to the end as quickly as possible. Uh but somewhere along and then lengthier work, you know, full-length novels, that was what I considered hard, and somewhere along the way that flipped because suddenly it was much easier for me if I had all that room uh, to kick ideas around and develop characters and, you know, explore concepts. And then it became much more difficult to write short fiction because I gotta, I gotta encapsulate everything into, uh, you know, 10,000 words or, you know, less, you know? Uh, so it's an, man, it's an art, uh, to do that and do it well. You know, then a lot of writers, um, particularly, uh, particularly like infamous or famous writers, uh, started their careers, writing short fiction. All my early stuff was short stories and things. But
3: Well, the, the, the path, I think, for for many writers for a very long time, you know, like probably 50s to maybe even the year 2000, um, was to, you know, write short stories, try to get those into uh, newspapers, magazines, things like that, um, you know, start earning, you know, earning a little bit of income as a writer through yeah. those, those short things. And you write that novel on the side and then eventually transition over. But almost all the authors I know started with, with short fiction just just because of that
2: are they all sort of in that other that older era though cuz like i think it's harder now to do to to really earn a living with short fiction i i, I hate saying things like that cuz there's always exceptions but like back when i was coming up like in the 80s and stuff when i started writing and sending things off and publishing like it seemed like it was easier like in some respects cuz i i knew that if this magazine bought it i'm going to get 80 cents per word or you know, those were the coveted ones, like 80 to 80 cents to a dollar per word were the ones I always tried to hit. But, you know, even getting like, you know, 30 cents a word was was OK. Uh, you could you could turn out a bunch of stories and do pretty well. But it seems like now paid markets for short fiction are are a little narrower and harder to crack. I don't know if you have that experience, you probably don't do this as much now, right No, no, but I mean,
3: I've got a ton of those writers' marketplace books, you know the ones that you can, they yeah. released a new one every year um and if I go back to my earliest ones and look at the, all the the venues where you can sell short fiction and compare it to like the latest one that I've got, you know it it basically went from like a huge section of the book to now it's like you know this tiny little quarter yeah. inch you know like there there's right. just there's just nobody there anymore i mean there's there's very few magazines, very few newspapers. Um, I mean, it, this started with newspapers. I mean, guys like Charles Dickens and, and Edgar Allan Poe, they wrote you know serialized fiction in newspapers. You know, that's where a lot of this right. kind of thing came from. Um, yeah, it's just it's just evolution. Um, but what it makes you very good at is just being able to get your points across very quickly, very concisely. And um, you know, Nick kind of went into this with his his series because you know now he's on book eight. Um, and, uh, do you do you have any series in the works? Like, do you have any that are uh, like a long
2: series? Yeah, I've got. Two or three, actually, uh, that are ongoing. Um, And my most popular one is that whole uh, Dan Kotler, the archaeological thrillers. I haven't put anything out for that in a while. So people may be wondering if I've still got that going. But I have a book in progress, I promise. Uh, Well,
3: one... One of the trickiest things to do with that is, you know, if you're on book five, you're on book six, you know, you have to open that book and and somehow get the description of your character out there. Any kind of backstory that you need to communicate um, from all the previous books needs to come out, you know, at at that opening Um, needs, but it needs to happen fast, you know, because like you don't want to turn away your, you know, your existing readers, the ones who know all this stuff. You don't want them to start flipping pages because they know it. Um, but you have to have enough there for somebody who's picking up that book, you know, the first book that it's the first book that you've ever written and that's or read in that series. If they're picking it up for the first time. You want them to understand what's going on. So there's a, a very fine line there. And I, I love reading books like, like Nick's because he is very, very good at communicating who, who Peter Ash is. Um, and yeah. you know, just a couple of sentences, you know, one or two paragraphs. Um, you know, if you pick up a Jack Reacher book, you know, you're going to kind of see the opposite. Like Lee doesn't really do that at all. You know, like there's, yeah. there's very little at the beginning of a, a Reacher novel to explain who Jack Reacher is. But the character development, the, you know, the persona and everything is just so strong. You know, the way that he writes it, like he literally doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to communicate a backstory.
2: Right. And that that lack of backstory is actually part of that character. Uh, mm-hmm. The characterization of, of Jack Reacher is is the being mysterious and unknown. That's one of one of the genius moves. Lee is actually. I think th- there's a little bit of genius going on there just in his pin name. Uh, he chose his pin name because the letter C puts him sort of, you know, out front. Uh, I think that's kind of funny and interesting, but uh, the character itself, like the choice to have him be nomadic and never, never in the same place twice and, you know, constantly on the move. And, and also just know that, you know, that, that idea that he just stops and picks up whatever he needs at a, You know, a goodwill or something, you know, instead of having a backpack or whatever, like that's, that's your opportunity for characterization, like instantly, you've got the mysterious stranger wandering into town, and you're going to learn who he is through what he does. That's that's genius. I think everybody should be focusing on that, frankly.
3: Yeah, I mean, just the fact that he walks in and he, he's got a toothbrush in his pocket and he's buying clothes yeah. rather rather than washing them, you know, that's a couple quick disclaimers or or, or descriptives. But you know, it tells you yeah. everything you need to know about the guy. You know, just how different he is from yeah. from everybody. And you else.
2: don't have to start like cha- scene one, chapter one, with that all the time either. You you, that's just an element that pops up at some point. Somebody says, "Hey, where you know, where's your." Where's your luggage or whatever? And he's right. got a grocery sack full of, you know, <laughs> and brand new underwear or whatever. Like that tells you an awful lot about that character.
3: So something else that Nick brought up, he, he talked to a lot of vets, you know, like he, he wasn't a vet himself, yeah. um, but he spoke to a lot of them to get a handle on what it was like for these people to come back from war and, and get dropped back into normal society. Um, Have have you ever done anything like that? That type of research for a character?
2: Yeah. Yes, I have. And with vets, too. Um, I, you know, I talked to part of this. uh, The advantage for me was that I was doing a a documentary series for PBS um, for and for History Channel on on these special forces guys from the Vietnam era. So I had access to all these people already. But, you know, if I ever need to know, like if I ever want to kind of touch base and learn a little more about what it would be like to be dropped in a hot zone or, you know, be shot at when you're flying over the border or whatever. Like I, I, I have these guys to talk to and have talked to a lot of them. It's, it's, it's good to get their perspective. Like they'll tell you details that you're just not going to get anywhere else.
3: I I, I lived in Florida for the longest time and I've spent a lot of time in retirement centers talking to the, the, the residents there. Because um, like it, it, it's a weird thing. Like I've got a line in um one of the four MK books where uh, Anson Bishop is basically explaining how kids are invisible to the, the majority of population. You know, people just don't mm-hmm. really see them. Then as we get older, you become more and more visible. You know, so when you're in your twenties, your thirties, your forties, your fifties, like you're basically the most visible you're ever going to be. And then as you get older, you start to fade away again and kind of disappear from you know, like people just don't see you anymore. And old people tend to be like that. You know, a lot of people just kind of, they see an older person, they just kind of, you know, they, they don't see them, you know, they see them, but they don't see them. Um, so if yeah. you ever get an opportunity to talk to elderly people at a retirement center, like the stories that they've got, the lives that they've lived, um, mm-hmm. it's a goldmine for for material. And, and they are always willing to to discuss it. And I've, I've never had a boring day in one of those places. I've always made some some really cool friends. Mm-hmm. Um, And just heard things that you just, you know, if if you were to just see that person standing in line at the grocery store, you would never have a clue that, you know, their, their life incorporated some of the things that it did. Um, So yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've mined that type of place for stories.
2: You know, Nick had said something about how he's the kind of person that people just randomly tell things to. And, uh, I, I also have that, I don't know what to call that if that's a curse or a superpower, but I i w I'm the one who will, I've, I'll literally he described standing in like a grocery store, and some woman told him about, you know, she, she's getting a divorce, and he was the first person she told. And I've had that exact experience. I mean, I have people. Was it the same woman? It might have been the same woman. <laughs> maybe is, maybe he and I were in the same grocery line. Uh, you never know. But I, I, I get people who will tell me like intimate details about their life just randomly out of nowhere. I just have one of those faces, I guess. Tell me your story. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that that has never happened to me but I think I kind of understand it with you cuz you just kind of have that personality or you're easy to talk to for for better or for worse maybe out for better or worse
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm open to it I'm to, I'm totally open to it
3: you know, he ma- he made another connection that I never really thought about before, but he said that working as a contractor helped him to, to write good books. And, it, you know, yeah. it, it's a very similar, like I've got a, a background in computer programming. I, I know a bunch of different computer programming languages. And when you write like the first line of code in a computer program, you have to understand how it's going to impact that last line of code. Um, you know, it's, it's always gotta be in the the back of your mind. And, you know, if you're a contractor, if you're building a house or you're, you know, doing something like that, it's the same thing, right? You're putting that foundation up, but you have to understand how that foundation is going to impact the roof, you know, and every, everything in between you think about that structure. And, um, yeah, I just thought that was a a really cool comparison. Um, and there's, I guess there's a lot of different careers that are are like that, um, where you can just kind of pull from, from the structure of the career itself and help you shape a novel, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, practically anything really. I mean, You know, my early days, I worked retail and and then later I was an engineer and then later I was, you know, working TV and things like that. And I've there are elements of what I do now that that were definitely shaped by all of those experiences. You know, the interaction with people like we just discussed, like, you know, people talking to me or whatever, like, you know, that's invaluable to a writer to to have that kind of rapport with people because people are what this is all about, not just the, the readers that we're writing for, we definitely want to understand them, but mm-hmm. these characters that we create, uh, you know, they need to resonate as someone real in the lives of the reader. Like they need to feel like somebody they just had a conversation with. And you get that stuff from being able to interact with people. Retail is a really good environment for that because you get to see everybody and then across the entire spectrum of emotion when you work retail, you know, <laughs> like I worked at a radio shack for years uh, I, I've seen, you know, meltdowns in the middle of the store and I've seen people jubilant because, you know, they, they finally found that, that component they needed to fix their VCR or whatever. Uh, you know, I, you get the whole range. So, and I've got plenty of bad guys in my books who were customers I had at, at Radio Shack. I miss Radio <laughs> Shack.
3: Is Ra- Radio Shack still around? I miss Radio Shack. That was one of my I favorite actually, stores.
2: I, I was under the impression that it had closed down entirely, but then, um, I think, I encountered either encountered one or I can't remember if if I if I actually saw the store, if I just saw someone talking about the store on YouTube or something. But there was like a Radio Shack open in this place. So I don't know if it's kind of like Blockbuster where there because there were franchises. When I started at Radio Shack, I worked for a franchise store that was then bought by. First, it was Tandy, but then became Radio Shack Corporation. So there may still be Radio Shack franchises out there. That are independent from that that corporation i miss radio shack too though i but i miss radio shack from my days when you know they were all about the they were they were ahead of the curve when it came to the diy movement and their mistake was trying to go mainstream and be like the big box stores because they they wanted to sell brand names other than their own and uh that's where they screwed themselves because they couldn't compete on price at all You know, they were far more They were sometimes twice or three times more expensive on like a Sony, you know, radio or something. That's where they really kind of screwed themselves. They should have just stuck with if they had stuck it out as we are your DIY source. There was a whole movement that came shortly after that where they would have just exploded in growth. But because it's a low overhead business when you're when you're not buying, you know. (laughs) <laughs> big consumer products.
3: I, I still remember riding my bicycle to the local radio shack to buy my first TRS eighty. Yeah the the the, tr- the trash the trash eighty the one of the very first home the computers trash
2: eighty. Could. Yep. Yeah, and my first laptop was um the T one thousand I think is the 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 model number, but it was a clamshell green screen, you know, floppy little floppy disk drive on the side. That was my first writing tool kind of miss it because that's now it's funny because people will pay like a thousand dollars for a focused writing tool like you right. know, the whatever that uh hemingway typewriter or whatever it is uh they'll they'll pay like a thousand dollars two thousand dollars for that thing and it it's you know it's I'm, a word I'm processor like yeah it's a word processor and like i had i had that i paid a hundred dollars for one second hand somewhere <laughs> at one <laughs> point all right jd uh so what's coming
3: up next week Next week, we've got Joanna Goodman coming on. She's the best-selling author of The Home for Unwanted Girls and The Forgotten Daughter. Her latest is an absorbing novel about mothers and daughters, secrets and dreams, and grief and obsession. It's called The Inheritance and releases March 12th. So she's going to be here. Joanna Goodman. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.